The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Just imagine if you knew exactly what everyone in your company, everyone in your department, everyone in your town, your city, your family, if you knew what everyone earned from their job, not just for the year, but per hour worked. Just imagine if everyone knew that and they could search it whenever they wanted. For example, when they were applying for a job, if you wanted to know what the previous person working in that job actually earned. Or, for example, you were thinking of moving to another job. What does the current person in that role earn? And when you're applying for that job and they're offering you the salary, is it the same as what was previously paid to that person? Now, that sounds like fantasy, doesn't it? Because we're quite secretive about what we get paid. There are reasons for that. Obviously, it's nice not to have everyone know what you earn. You don't want the, the criminals and the thieves to know. But in the long run, maybe it would be a good idea if everyone knew what everyone earned. Now, you might think this is some sort of fantasy land thing. But actually, this happens in one particular country, Norway. Since the late 1800s, Norway, as a Lutheran country, has this strange cultural practice which says no one is more valuable than someone else, everyone's part of the community, and no one should try to stand out by earning a lot more or being much, much richer unlike in, say, America, where it's lauded if you can show you're much, much richer or you earn more. In these Nordic countries, with this Lutheran history, it's actually not lauded. It pays to not stand out. And one way that this Lutheran country, Norway, decided to ensure that everyone knew what everyone else was being paid and that there was no unexplained standing out and in particular that everyone paid their taxes, was the creation of something called the Skattelist. Now, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that in Norwegian, but it essentially means the tax list. And every year, everyone has to declare publicly in Norway what they earned, what they paid in tax, what their net wealth is, and then it goes into a database. And everyone can search to find out what someone else earned and how much they're worth. I know this sounds outlandish, but it's true. And up until about a decade ago, anyone could find out and not have to tell the person that they were checking up on how much they earned. And this was uh, eventually brought up to date to the modern age and put onto a searchable database. Now, when that happened, they realized they were creating a monster and uh, some sort of motherload for marketers, not to mention scam artists. 
So they changed the rules so that anyone who was doing a search on another named person, that named person was informed about who was doing the search. So that cut down on a lot of uh, opportunistic searching. It's a bit like when you dial up homes.co.nz to find out what your aging great auntie is an owner of and whether or not you might inherit a lot and not having to tell your great auntie that you were just checking out how much she was earning. But in Norway, the transparency of people's earnings has changed the culture. And a lot of that information is available to journalists without having to check or declare to the person you're searching. And of course, it all goes into databases that can tell whether some companies, some employers are actually discriminating on the grounds of gender or race. So what that's meant is that in Norway, you know when you're not being paid fairly. And what that's meant is that employers are very cautious about not discriminating against, in particular, women. Now, that means that Norway and Sweden, those Lutheran countries, and Norway in particular, uh, with its tax list transparency, has amongst the lowest gender wage gap in the world. Transparency actually works in Norway. Now, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we like to think that we do things fairly. We've had a couple of women prime ministers. In fact, three. We have a woman who is our chief justice. Uh, But in many areas, we are still seeing relatively low representation of women at senior levels. And when you measure pay equity, so is a woman doing work of equal value, being paid the same for the same type of job as a man, it's obviously illegal to discriminate in that way. But what we end up with, even after that law change, is quite a big gap in wages paid to women overall, around the 20 to 25% mark, depending on how you measure it. And it's not just because what we've seen over time is more and more women working in areas or industries with relatively low pay. And we've seen examples of where that's been prosecuted and agreements have been made, obviously in areas like nursing, aged care, and uh, increasingly we're going to see these sorts of deals done in gender equity. For example, uh, we've seen the government just this week um, force through a 14% pay increase for nurses because of uh, gender equity agreements. But what if everyone knew exactly what everyone else was being paid? And what if we could measure those payments and strip out some of the, frankly, excuses that are made about the difference in pay between women and men? Now, one of the arguments you hear a lot is that, well, women aren't paid as much as men because... They tend, particularly later in their careers, not to work longer hours, perhaps because of family commitments, or over time they don't develop the same levels of skills as men, and that explains why they're paid less. And not just paid less overall, but paid less per hour. And those excuses are often used to explain the gap 
of around 20 to 25%. But what if you could strip out those various excuses and understand the effects of what they call sorting? This is where women are working in a particular industry. Let's say it's aged care or uh, uh, cleaning of offices or uh, particular, you could argue, relatively low-skilled jobs. And what if you were able to strip that out and work out what women working in a particular job of the same skill being paid per hour to an equivalent man and be able to compare what they're paid with their productivity, being able to understand that a person who is particularly productive is being paid the same as another person who is just as exactly as productive, but as a man. Then you're getting down to the nitty-gritty of what actually is the gender pay gap that can't be explained by, you could argue, excuses or statistical facts. So where is the genuine classic discrimination? Where an employer pays a woman who is just as productive, less than the man who is working in the same job at the same level of skill and who is just as productive. Like for like, apples for apples, they should be paid exactly the same. What would happen if you actually stripped out all of those effects and got down to the nitty gritty? Well, Isabel Sin is New Zealand's real academic economic expert in measuring gender pay gaps. And In a paper, which we discuss in an interview coming up on When the Facts Change, she explains how she worked out, by stripping back these various excuses, these reasons, what the gender pay gap is. And surprisingly, perhaps, or maybe not, what Isabel found was that there was still a gap, even after those, you could argue, excuses. And it was still a double-digit pay gap. It shows you that there is still fairly classic discrimination in industries and in areas where there wasn't much competition, where the employer had a particular type of market power, where it was difficult for new entrants to come in. It was in those industries where the discrimination was the highest, where not only the employer had market power over their competitors and their customers, they also had market power to expand the gender pay gap. Interestingly, we got to talk about how COVID and shortages of labour might actually reduce that gap and how extra competition in sectors not only was good for consumers, it was good for reducing the gender pay gap. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey and we're mining the gap and understanding what actually is between the pay of men and women in Aotearoa. Well, welcome to Izzy Sin, who is an economist at Motu in Wellington. Welcome in to When the Facts Change, Izzy. Good morning. Thank you very much for talking about your research into uh, gender pay equality or inequality. Tell us about um, the, the main recent paper which has been published that looked into the gap, the reasons for the gap, and uh, gives us a sense of the broad scale. 
Um, so this was a, a joint piece of research with my, my co-author, Stephen Stillman, who's now based in Italy. Um, and what we really wanted to do in this paper is pull together the rich data that New Zealand um, has on the earnings of employees and try and use that to understand what is driving the gender wage gap in New Zealand. There is a lot of evidence the gender wage gap still exists. I know there are people who don't believe that, but it is still a thing. And it hasn't really been decreasing over the last decade or two. Um, and we tried, there are lots of possible explanations for the gender wage gap. So what we wanted to do was really bring data to this question and approach it from a number of different angles and try and understand which of these potential reasons for the gender wage gap actually hold water um, and which do not. So how did you go about comparing apples with apples, if you like? Because a lot of jobs, they may have the same title and appear to be the same, but actually it involves different levels of education or experience. Or uh, Tell us how you sort of uh, pulled the strands apart. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that a really good question. And a lot of the fairly technical things that we did in this paper, we're trying to deal, deal with that issue. So it sort of started with started with a thinking, and this was drawing from the economics literature, from literature, from general knowledge, from everything that we could find about like what might be driving the gender wage gap in the first place. So to figure out to figure out how do we how do we identify this cleanly, we need to know what are the possible causes. So I thought it might be useful if I just talked through some of the things that could be driving the gender wage gap first. Thinking about what drives the gender wage gap, I think it's useful to think what do we mean by the gender wage gap because. One thing that confuses people is there's, there's not really one definition that everyone agrees on. For instance, at the most basic level, we can look at what does a man earn in a year on average? What does a woman earn in a year on average? You know, if those are different, we can call that a gender wage gap. Of course, there are lots and lots of reasons that those two people or those two averages of people might earn different amounts. And some of those are really good reasons. For instance, if the woman is working half time, then we would reasonably expect she would earn a lot less. Um, so at a basic level, what we might want to do is control for how much time did this person actually work during the period we're looking at. Um, so one way of doing this is looking at, instead of looking at like annual earnings, we could look at hourly wages. So that sort of takes out the element of how much time they put into it. But then, of course, there's still going to be a lot of other reasons. Um, for instance, it might be that men and women work in really different industries. Men all work in banking or accounting and women all work as you know receptionists or as something else. And because their their contribution to their employer is quite different, they're doing different things. They might be men might all be in high school jobs, one might all be in low school jobs, for instance. Then that could be a good reason. Um, so that's so that element is thinking about where do men and women work. Um, so working in a different place, contributing a different amount to your employer, can be a good reason to get paid a different amount. That we often call sorting of workers. We can talk about sorting into occupations, the, the classic men are doctors, women are nurses, that's that sort of dichotomy. Um, sorting into industries, um, and also sorting into firms. So some firms just pay well. They've you know, they found a good market niche, they make high profits and they're able to share that with their employees. And if men disproportionately work in those types of firms, they can end up earning more than women for good reasons. Well, for reasons. Reasons. <laughs> yeah, not necessarily good reasons, for reasons. Um, so another one, and this is what you alluded to previously, is that maybe the, maybe men and women are making a different contribution to their employer. So, for instance, people who are more educated tend to bring more to the workplace. They're doing, you know, highly skilled, highly specialised jobs, as opposed to someone who's, you know, putting boxes on shelves. It's a valuable job. Someone's got to do it. But it's it's a sort of job that, you know, you don't need a lot of training for, or maybe a little bit of physical strength. But it's not a highly skilled job that we would expect to be rewarded very highly. 
Um, so the classic way of dealing with that is, well, let's control for things that we can see about these people. Let's put in the years of experience. This is often proxied by age. Let's put in the education. Let's put in, let's control for these sorts of characteristics. The challenge with this is that there are always going to be some things that you can't observe. So you can't observe, you know, is this person get into the office and work furiously for eight hours before they go home? Or do they come in, head to the kitchen, make some coffee, chat with their friends for a while, maybe just, you know, spend an hour or two going through their emails. You can't, you can't, you can never see this in the data. And often, um, you know, maybe that um, chatting over the water cooler is actually a great way to be productive. In many cases, it's actually really valuable. We know that geography matters for sharing ideas, and it's these incidental meetings that do matter. So maybe in some workplaces, that's great. Um, maybe for this person, you know, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, so we can't see productivity differences in individuals. Um, and we do know, for instance, that women tend to have a lot more commitments outside the workplace. If there are children in a household, it's very much disproportionately the women who are dealing with the children at home who are doing a lot more of the, the child rearing, child raising, who have to take off from work when the child is sick and this sort of thing. And again, that's not necessarily for good reasons. These may be social norms that may not be that may not be optimal. Um, but there are, and also social norms do do drive into these things a lot. Um, so there could be productivity differences. So one of the one of the things that we do in this paper is try and figure out, okay, well, how much of the wage gap between men and women is due to these productivity differences? So I'll come back to how we do that because there are a few more reasons that I want to talk about first. Um, so one thing that's come up in the literature quite a bit is differences in bargaining ability or bargaining success. So if you're a high skilled worker and you're, the potential employer really wants you, you can say, you know, that's a really nice job offer, but I think actually I'm going to need, you know, this much extra to come and work for you. Um, and one possibility is that men are either more willing to do this or more successful at doing that. Um, so that has actually come up in the literature in quite a few places, and there is reasonable evidence that men are more successful at this. And this is one of the things that we look at. And is there any evidence that New Zealand is different from the rest of the world in terms of uh, women being more detailed and assertive and um, calling for a bigger wage than <laughs> men? So I've actually not seen that research done in New Zealand. So a lot of this research is done in America. Um, and New Zealand, of course, does have certain cultural similarities to America, um, but I've, I've actually not seen this, this that particular type of... Because um, there is this idea that New Zealand, uh, we're all a little bit um, conflict-averse and passive-aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> and, um, and I wondered how much of a factor that was. But So how much, how much of a factor then is this issue of uh, women not pushing at that initial moment of, you know, getting the salary or the... Pay? I mean... Anecdotally, so this is not research, but I, I think I think it is really important in New Zealand. So a few years ago, I did a piece of work looking at the gender wage gap among medical specialists. So these are you know highly skilled, highly trained people, um, and I went and presented this research at the conference for for medical specialists in New Zealand. Um, and I heard a lot of so we got into a bit of a discussion during my during my presentation about anecdotes about men and women who'd been offered these you know these positions as doctors in New Zealand, and the story was very much. The men were offered something and they're like, oh, well, actually, I think I should be on a higher pay band. I think I should get more. I think I should have these other perks. Whereas the women were like, oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for offering me the job. Um, and this came up from a number of people who had been involved in the hiring of these individuals. Obviously, that's just an anecdote. Um, but it, it does say something that this was so obvious within, within this particular group of people. Um, all right. So the last reason that we really thought about um, was discrimination. So discrimination, there are two, two main types of discrimination that we think about. So one is called statistical discrimination. So this is when a person is applying for a job, it's really hard for their potential employer 
to see how productive they're going to be. And so they have to sort of look at what they know and make some judgments. And one of the judgments they tend to make is like, what group does this person fit into? What ethnicity are they? What age group are they? What gender are they? Um, And if, in general, women tend to be less committed to work, maybe because they have more outside responsibilities, the employer will look at this woman and say, well, she's a woman, she's probably going to get distracted by other things, I should pay her less. I should offer to pay her less. And because the woman has no way to signal, actually, I'm, a, I'm as dedicated as any man, you know, as the, as the most dedicated men, she can't signal that until she's actually on the job. Um, so statistical discrimination is sort of based on averages for groups and employers make assumptions about individual based on what groups they belong to. And that's sort of clearly the most unfair of the various reasons that you could give for um, having a wider gap. So far, I'm just, so about far. To get to the, I'm just about to get to the most unfair one. <laughs> so the most unfair one, I think, is taste discrimination. So this is an employer will look at a person and say, oh, I just don't like working with women. I don't think, a, you know, I don't want to hire a woman. I think I'd, I'd rather hire a man. A woman will come in and upset the team. She'll distract the engineers or, or anything like that. Um, and even, even within that, there's sort of a couple of different reasons why that might happen. So one might be that an example of this is in, in like a customer-facing role. It could be that I don't think my customers will, for instance, want to buy hardware from a woman, so I'm going to hire a man to sell this stuff. Um, so that's some some people would argue that's a little more justifiable than the than the employer themselves saying I don't want to work at a work with a work with a woman. I don't want a woman in my organisation. Um, but still, both of those are fairly. We think about both of those as being fairly icky. Yeah, and how do you um, find out how big a factor that is? Do you do you survey? Do you, is it is it possible to extract it from the data? So there are that that is challenging, and often it's sort of once we rule out all of these other things, then it's probably going to be one of those two types of discrimination. Um, but there are also a few a few things you can look for. For instance, if it is. Um, if it is discrimination, then here are the places we'd most likely see it. Um, and if we can test, here, here are the places we'd most likely see a gender wage gap. And then if the gender wage gap pattern actually does line up with that, we can say this is consistent with taste discrimination being important. So these are sort of the factors that, that could drive the gender wage gap. But I think it's actually, so some of these sound quite reasonable, right? So you can think about a woman contributes less to her firm because she's working less hard or whatever. And so she gets paid less. Yeah, that seems fair. Or she's in a less senior job. She's, you know, middle manager as opposed to senior manager, gets paid less. But I think that's actually ignoring. So our paper doesn't reach this far because this is, this is the world and we can't do everything. Um, but just for context, I think it's actually important to think about why does that happen? And it can be that discrimination is the reason that this brilliant woman is not a senior manager and she is only a middle manager. So even if she is, you know, contributing less to her firm, discrimination and bad reasons can be a reason for this. Um, so that's one point. So thinking, coming back to the issue of sorting who works where, so sometimes that's for good reasons. Um, this, this, this goes a lot more broad than my research, but thinking about what sorts of things do men and women like to do, how much of that is it innate and how much is it taught, how much are women taught they have to be caring, how much are men taught they have to be competitive. That's a whole, a whole big mess that I won't go too much into, but there can be social forces that lead to the sorting of men into high-paying industries and women into low-paying industries. Um, that's another thing. Coming back to this point on bargaining, um, so so one of the things that I really find is is quite 
is quite not good. Um, it's it's a sort of victim blaming type approach. It's like, oh, so women aren't so good at bargaining. Well, they should just ask for more money. It would fix all the problem if women were just more assertive and said, I deserve a pay rise, give me a pay rise. The problem is that this is within a whole social system. So there has been a lot of research, and again, this is mostly based in America, that says that women who ask for these things are viewed negatively because they're going against the female stereotype. Women are supposed to be, you know, cooperative and working as a team and not pushing themselves forward. So you have a woman who says, you know, I'm worth more than that. You need to give me an extra $10,000. Is viewed, oh, she was a bit pushy. I don't think I'd like to work with a woman who that's, who's that pushy. Whereas a man who says that, says, oh, he's looking out for himself. He's confident. He's going to be a great leader. And, and this is, these are driven by the social things that sit behind behind these. Um, so it's not it's not... I don't want want anyone to think that we should be blaming the women for not asking for more money because it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's really this whole social system that this sits within that is the problem, not not the women. So in that research, you've you've worked out what are the uh, factors linked to industry types or particular types of firms that are doing well, uh, number of hours worked, those sorts of things, different levels of education. So you're starting to get down to the the meaty, this is where the really, really um, clearly unfair discrimination uh, taste uh, areas are. And, and what sort of, what did you find once you'd, you'd, that you'd, once you'd stripped out the, the other things and got to the core of it? Yeah, so we found that basically all of the potential reasons that there might be a gender wage gap were contributing, both the good reasons and the bad reasons. Um, so I'd like to walk you through just a little bit about how we looked at um, the importance of productivity differences between men and women. Um, So one of the challenges here is that you can't really see how much an individual contributes to the employer because people don't work as individuals. They usually work as part of a team and they'll contribute to lots of of different aspects of the organisation and it's really hard to just say this person contributes this much. Fortunately, economists have been working on this problem for a long time. We've come up with various sort of techniques for understanding contributions. Um, this has to this sort of has to happen at the at the firm level. So essentially, what we do is we look at we look at different firms, and what we're really doing is comparing firms that are similar across all aspects, except some have more women in their workforce and some have more men. Um, and if we're, we're controlling for a bunch of other things, we are controlling for you know how much other inputs they have, how much capital they have and all these sorts of things. Um, and then we look at, so across, let's say, across all these firms that are similar but have a different, different, different proportions of men and women in their workforce, we're looking at two things. So first, how does the overall wage bill, the amount of money that this firm is paying to, paying to all of their employers, employees, how does this vary with the gender mix? And also, how does the total value of the stuff that this employer is producing vary with the gender mix? Um, and essentially what we find is that the amount of stuff being produced hardly varies at all with the gender mix, but the total amount that they're paying to their employees actually goes up quite a lot as the proportion of men go up. And because we're controlling for all these other things, what this is sort of telling us is that for the same amount of contribution to the employer, men are getting paid more. So that would mean that um, companies that have uh, relatively high proportions of women are potentially more profitable in that the, the the wage share is relatively lower. Yeah, you that that would certainly come out of that. And that's actually a really interesting point that leads me on to something else that I'd like to talk about. Um, so one of the arguments is that well there can't be there can't be gender discrimination if we have a firm that's operating in a competitive market because if this firm is paying like paying like men more then 
they're going to get driven out of business by all these by all these other organizations. Um, so what the prediction that comes out of that is that this gender discrimination is only really going to be able to persist if the firm has some market power, if it's making greater than normal profits, if it's in a you know profitable sort of industry. Um, and that's actually one of the other things that we look at. So we estimate this gender wage productivity gap and we estimate it separately in different industries and we see like what are the characteristics of the industries where this is large. Um, so theory gives us a few predictions. So one is that you're not going to see much um, gender discrimination in industries where workers are low-skilled because work, low-skilled workers are largely substitutable for each other. Um, it's not going to really matter if you can catch a particular worker or not. And there's not much in terms of profits that you can share with these workers. But in industries where we have a lot of high school workers, where they're creating rents for their employer, then there's something that we can split, that we can give, you know, give more to men, give less to women. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of our housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, then it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. So what industries did you find in New Zealand where there is this bigger amount of discrimination because it's relatively more profitable and it has more market power? Yeah. Um, so we, um, I don't have off the top of my head like, sure. what the industries were, but yep. what we did find was that the gender wage gap that was not explained by productivity differences was exactly in the in the industries and at the times where we would expect based on this theory. So where workers are high-skilled, 
um, where the firm is is not in a competitive product market, so they're making good profits, um, and where there are lots of candidates looking at few jobs. Um, so we, we saw that that was where this unex- basically unexplained gender wage gap is largest, um, and that is very consistent with taste discrimination being an important part of driving the gender wage gap. Does that mean then when we have a really tight labour market like we do at the moment that the level of uh, discrimination and the size of the gap might fall? Yeah, that is actually one of the predictions. So the, the, the wage gap that's that's due to this particular factor, but of course there are lots of other factors. And we know that, for instance, COVID has disrupted the way that women interact with the workforce. And that, that's going to drive things in the other direction if women have... And if there are issues with children at the moment. Children's education was very disrupted. Um, and that means that, you know, more parental um, parental time might be required trying to get the kids back on track. Um so there are, there are so so just just that fact would suggest that we might see a decrease in the gender wage gap, but I think there are lots of other forces that could muddy that that are going on at the same time. So um, you've you've worked out then uh, what the core of the gender wage gap is, and uh, and some of the other more social factors or factors that are because of the type of industry or. Um, numbers of hours of work and that sort of thing. So what's the sort of scale then of the, of the core of the problem? And, and then what are the sort of, sort of policies that you could look at to, um, to try and squeeze it back down again? Well, in our analysis, we sort of found that the overall gender wage gap was about 20%. Um, and once we narrowed down to a men and women being paid different amounts within the same firm, then we saw that that gender wage gap was only about 13%, um, which I think is still sizable. Um, so it does seem like it's a concern. Um, in terms of what policies, I really think because there are so many different things playing into this, it has to come from a bunch of different places. So there are some things, for, in- for instance, um, that are sometimes dis- sometimes discussed, um, like transparency about about wages. So one point when I so when I talked to the medical specialists when I'd done this piece on the gender wage gap and my medical specialists. Female medical specialists were earning twelve and a half percent less than similar males, um, and when I told when I told the women who are medical specialists, they were really surprised. They said, I, "I'd always assumed that my colleagues, my male colleagues, were getting the same that I was getting." Of course, how would I know? It was just an assumption because you know, being the way we are, we don't generally talk about how much we earn. Um, and so, one of the things that allows this gender wage gap to be perpetuated is that people don't know how much their colleagues are being paid. Um, and so one solution that's been proposed by some people is like, let's force firms to be more transparent about what they're paying men and women at, you know, at different different types of seniority. And that, and and that can be done without naming names. Absolutely. You can do it so you can anonymize fashion. Yeah. In, a, in, a larger, in a larger employer where a lot of people in New Zealand work, then you can totally confidentialize this. So no one, no one knows, oh, Bill is getting this much, um, Sarah is getting this much. You can just give them aggregates. Um, but that that does provide a level of sort of accountability that it's being public. Um, and there's also an increasing, so some research that I read about recently, there's an increasing drive from consumers to buy things from firms that are viewed to be you know, progressive in this sense. So if you have firms that show, look, we've we've totally got rid of our gender wage gap, then that can actually be good for their business and that can that can perpetuate a virtuous cycle. And from an investment point of view too, there are ESG funds that um, look at these things and and measure um, disclosures. And some Absolutely. some uh, uh, stock markets and uh, countries force disclosure on these things through their through listed companies. Yeah. And um, and also uh, uh, there are moves afoot to be 
uh, to use regulation or the law to try to get more transparency. There are, absolutely. Mm. And, and sometimes, sometimes you have things like there are regulations about you need a certain number of women on your board. If your board is a certain size, it has to have at least two women, things like that. Um, so I think there are, and, and some of these have been more or less successful, but I think part of what they actually start to do is shift norms and shift people's perceptions because part of the issue is that when you think of, let's think of a senior board member or a leader, you picture this person, you picture a man, right? And that's what most people will go to. Um, and once we can start to shift that perception, oh, we picture a senior leader, we're picturing a woman, then then you don't, you can, hopefully you can get to the point eventually where you actually don't need these policies. But I think policies are part of shifting, shifting how we think about, how we think about roles in society. In places like Norway, uh, they have a long tradition of forcing the disclosure of everyone's income by name and yep. address, <laughs> which is a freaking nightmare if you stick it into a database. <laughs> they, had, they had to control it in the end. But what it's meant is that the level of discrimination in Norway is significantly less purely because of that disclosure. Mm. Um, are there any other examples or any other areas where the level of discrimination is lower because of a particular practice or a change in practice has lowered the level of discrimination? Um, I, think, I think one area that's really important is policies around having children um, and how do we support women to have children and stay engaged with the workforce. So there are sort of a few competing things here. So one is partly like the welfare of the women, the welfare of their children, and it's not that we don't, we don't want to, you don't want to live in a country that's all focused about making sure women are right back at work so we don't interfere with their careers or anything like that. So, but the, the issue is if you have policies that encourage women to take really long leave, that does tend to be disruptive to their careers. And there, there is sort of some evidence that that, that, that can be problematic. Um, the, the, and sort of the other side of it is thinking about childcare. So if the mother is back at work and the father is back at work, somebody has to be looking after the child. How much is the government contributing to that? How much are they... You know, how much are they helping out with that? Um, sort of enabling the women who do want to go back to work to do so. Um, and I think, that, I mean, these are really difficult issues because you have a child and you want to spend time with your child. You don't want to be working full time while, you know, while you have this young baby. You want, to, you want time off to, to bond with the baby. And I think, I think it really comes down to some of the sort of the social norms within society. So you hear a lot of fathers say, I'd really love to have you know, to work less, to spend more time with my child, but that's really frowned upon. And and there are some men who are the, the primary caregiver for their child and they say, it's really difficult because I'm discriminated against by all the mothers, I'm cut out of these networks, people really look down at me. Um, and I think these are all social things that need to change before we can really have gender equality. So there are lots of, it's, it is a difficult question and policy does play a role, but social norms and social attitudes, I think, are also really, really important and can be can be very difficult to, to shift. And is there a role at all here for government in terms of forcing transparency in a way that would give um, people who are applying for jobs more power, if you like? Uh, I see in the United States in some areas where companies are forced to disclose the general uh, pay levels for certain types of jobs that women who were... Um, told about it before the job interview um, could then use that as a, 
a base, if you like, uh, a, a way to frame the discussion, which <laughs> has a higher base than than what they might have had before. Yeah, I mean, I do think I do think there potentially is is a role for for those sorts of policies. One of the things that you see in this area is that a lot of firms, when they're hiring somebody, they'll say, "Well, what did you earn before?" Um, and then they will just offer you some little bump up on what you earned before. The problem is that if the gender wage gap is widespread through the economy, women who are coming into this role will tell a lower figure about what they were earning previously than men will. Um, and so one approach that's been taken is that people who are hiring are not allowed to ask, what did you previously earn? Could that, and that can, that can like shortcut, shortcut that straight away. Um, so I think that's, I'm not sure how, good the, how convincing the evidence is that this is really successful, but conceptually you can see why that might make a difference. You can see why that mechanism could be a problem. Um, and that could be one way of shortcutting that, that cycle. And from the various bits of research you've done, um, are there any other sectors other than the ones where there have already been um, gender pay agreements or investigations or, or court cases, um, childcare, nursing, teaching? Are there any other parts of the economy where there's um, a clear case where uh, maybe there should be an investigation into it or some sort of more detailed measure? I mean, I expect people in industries will know if their own industry is a problematic one. Maybe they don't talk about it in that sense, but I, I expect somebody knows. My my analysis has mostly been looking more at the sort of overall economy level than trying to investigate specific industries. But I think anywhere where there are high skill employees, where there, where there are employers who are making a good profit is a is a place that we should be looking at and seeing is there is there a problem here. And in your research, you would have seen lots of um, reasons put forward for why there's a gap. Um, what were the, some of the most uh, interesting, uh, egregious, uh, um, curious ones that you hope maybe the research can shed more uh, accurate light on? I mean, a lot of them are the really traditional views. Men are, men are better leaders. Men are, men are more productive men are basically better at doing the things that that are rewarded in the labour market. Women, so we know that there's a huge gender wage gap once women have children, but there's a gender wage gap even before women have children. Um, And the idea is that part of that is that an employer will look at a woman and say, oh, well, she's likely to have kids in the next few years, so we shouldn't pay her so much. And there's been some research looking at this, looking at um, same-sex partners um, and there's a much lesser expectation that that lesbian women will have children in the next few years, and so they don't they're not discriminated against in that same way, which which seems seems fairly horrendous. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of people doing research on this, thinking about this, are in fairly sort of privileged professions, um, and we don't see what's going on in the ground. And for instance, in engineering firms, and that's been that's been in the news recently. That also aligns with some other research that I've been doing. Um, so women are much less likely to go into these these sorts of these sorts of firms, and they're much less likely to stay there once they're there. Um, and a lot of this seems to be about attitudes that are there. And there are a lot of a lot of well-meaning men at these firms who are trying to protect their one and only female colleague, but that protection can actually be really detrimental to the women. Um, and she may be she may be viewed as less capable because she's a woman, just because it's it's such a male-dominated industry. Um, her, her male colleagues may be trying to, you know, protect her from doing the difficult things and will do that for her. But she ends up looking bad, being really upset about the situation, just getting fed up and leaving. Um, It'll be interesting to see how this um, intense labour shortage changes um, views and 
pay levels and that sort of thing. Izzy Sin, uh, an economist at Motu in Wellington, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kia he Butler here, Podcast Manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.